Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today, we are looking at the book of Job, specifically chapters one through three, and this episode is entitled, The Insecurity of Job. A reading from Job chapter one. There was once a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send an invite to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. So from the very beginning of this story, the author wants us to know that Job is a very religious man and God has blessed Job accordingly. Job is so religious, so devout, that he offers sacrifices above and beyond what is prescribed by scripture. He offers sacrifices just in case on the offhand chance one of his children has sinned because Job is so blameless that we all know that he has not sinned. From that introduction, the narrator then shifts the scene from earth all the way up to heaven, and we read about a conversation between God and Satan that begins in verse 6. The author writes, One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro upon the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord then said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of Job's hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and Job will curse you to your face. So we have this scene in heaven where God is bragging to Satan about how devout his follower Job is to God. And Satan responds by saying, anyone will worship you if they're rich. But if you take away everything he has... Well, Satan says, then Job will curse you to your face. Now, we assume that God will respond to Satan by saying, I will not play your game. Why do I have anything to prove to you? I am the creator of the universe. But instead, the story takes its first surprise turn. In verse 12, we read, the Lord said to Satan, very well, all that Job has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. And after verse 12, Satan unleashes holy hell on Job. 
Job is minding his own business when in verse 13, a servant comes running up to him and says between gasping breaths, Job, the Sabians have attacked. They have taken your oxen. They have taken your donkeys. They have murdered all of your servants who worked with those animals. I alone have survived to tell you this. While that servant is still speaking, another servant runs up in verse 16 and interrupts the other servant who is bearing bad news to bear bad news himself. This second servant says, Job, you will not believe this, but fire from God descended from heaven upon your sheeps and the servants who were tending them. All of your sheep and all of your servants have died except for me. I alone have survived to tell you this bad news. While that servant is still speaking, a third servant sprints into the conversation, interrupts the second servant and says, Job, the Chaldeans have attacked your camels. They have taken all of your camels and they have murdered all of the servants who tended for your camels. I alone have survived to tell you this. And just when that feels like it's too much. Another servant comes running up in verse 18 and says, Job, a great wind has arisen from the east. And this wind was so terrible that it destroyed buildings. One of the buildings it destroyed was your son's home and all of your sons, all of your daughters were eating there together and they are all dead along with the servants who tended that household. I alone have survived to tell you this. Within the matter of minutes, Job loses everything and is simultaneously grieving the death of 10 of his children. And after the servants stop interrupting each other, we read about Job's reaction to this massive amount of loss in verse 20. The narrator writes, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. Now, none of this is surprising because these are all rituals of grieving from Job's culture. What is surprising, what is the second surprise of this story, is what happens after Job falls to the ground. Because the author tells us that Job tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you have spent any time in church recently, you recognize those words because they are the words of a very famous praise song that goes something like this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. And all of the churchgoers hear this story and hear Job's commitment to the faith. And they respond by saying, hallelujah, Job still believes. Satan said to God, God, if you take away Job's riches, he will not worship you. And Job follows through and stays committed to God. The narrator picks up on this arc of the story with the last verse in chapter one, when the narrator writes in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if the story ended there? But this story is just getting warmed up. 
In chapter 2, we return to heaven for a very similar conversation that we experienced in chapter 1 between God and Satan. In fact, God prods Satan and asks him the question, have you considered my servant Job? He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Now, these words of God are some rather interesting theology. Because according to God in Job chapter 2, Satan manipulated God to do these things. And God is not the hero in this story so far, but Job is. Satan responds to these words by saying, Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch Job's bone and Job's flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan is essentially saying that Job is a selfish person, and Job will say whatever it takes to preserve Job's self. Now, we hope that God will say, I will not inflict suffering on a human being to prove a point, but God does not say that in verse 6. Instead, God says to Satan, very well, Job is in your power. Only spare his life. We then read, Satan inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a pot shard with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. And while Job is in pain and while Job is experiencing a terrible illness and is writhing around in the dust, the dirt, and some translations say the dung, his wife approaches him in verse 9 and says, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job responds to her with some misogynistic words by saying, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? The narrator then adds, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And churchgoers everywhere respond with the same word, hallelujah, Job has done this. He has taken another test upon himself and has passed the test. He has stayed faithful to God. But the story isn't over. Because after saying those words and holding on to his faith, we are introduced to three of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, which are just some incredible names. So these three friends show up and we read in verse 12, when Job's friends saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that Job's suffering was very great. And so I want to invite you to picture this scene where there are three friends sitting around Job. No one says anything. They are all feeling the same thing where they are seeing their friend writhing in pain and it's hard to even recognize him. And so they sit with him in his grief and they sit in silence for seven days. And after the seven days are done, 
we read in the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, finally, Job cried out. Now, given where this story has gone before, we assume that Job is going to cry out, you can't take away my faith, Satan. I am going to hold tightly to my belief in God, and I am grateful that this God is my God. So we read in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, Job cried out, God damn the day I was born and the night that forced me from the womb. And all of the church congregations say, Hallelujah, what? Whoa, those are some strong words Job has for God. And what's so surprising about this story is that a lot of people have grown up hearing this story in the church But this part in chapter 3 is conveniently left out. And here we have this person who has this, what looks to be unshakable faith, who is tested over and over again by God and Satan, or really a combination of both of those. And it finally breaks him in chapter 3, verse 1. And if you're like me, You read this story and your main thought is, well, the story of Job is a disturbing story. It's disturbing because when you look at why Job suffered, it's because God had this raging insecurity. God wanted to prove how devout Job was to him. And so he wanted to see what would happen by toying with a human being in their emotion. Not only that, but it becomes infinitely more complex when you consider this story from the perspective of Job's children. Who died? Why? Because of God's fragile ego? To appease God's insecure vanity? The reason this story is so disturbing is because Job suffers because of God's insecurity. And Satan plays the role of God's insecurity in this story. And so we look at this disturbing story and we often dismiss it in 2020. And I will tell you that when I told people from Paradox, hey, we're doing a series in the book of Job right now, a lot of people responded by saying, are you sure that's the right book for this time, Craig? To which I responded, The book of Job, in my opinion, speaks to our current suffering more than any other book of the Bible right now. To explain why I think that is, we need to go back to the beginning. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. There was once a man in the land of Uz. Well, if you've spent some time with Paradox before, you know that immediately when we read those words, We feel like the author makes a point to tell us where the story is taking place because that's part of the story. So we go to the maps and the archaeological records searching for a place called Uz, and then a problem arises. We can't find Uz. We can't find a location for Uz. We don't know where Uz was or is. (laughs) And the story begins with a place that is difficult to find. Not only that, but the problems compound when you look closely at Job chapter 1, verse 3. In that verse, we read, He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
Now pay attention to that because what the author wants us to know is that this was quite possibly the richest man on earth. And when you consider who the richest man on earth was during Job's day and age, we can assume that we could go to the archaeological record and find some reference to this man who has this massive amount of wealth. There's just one problem. We can't find a Job anywhere in the archaeological record. There's no reference to him from other sources. There's no estate that we can find. There's no trace of Job anywhere. And it casts doubt as to whether Job was actually as rich as the Bible claims that he was, or even if he existed at all. Which brings us back to verse one of this story when the narrator says, the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is rather stunning because in the Hebrew Bible, there's not a lot of people who get a free pass from sin. <laughs> and when you add the Christian Bible to the Hebrew Bible, there's still not a lot of people who get a free pass from sin. Jesus Christ, who Christians proclaim to be the Son of God, is the only people Christian person that Christians feel comfortable describing as blameless and upright. So the fact is, when you talk about how Job is blameless and upright, it causes problems because we can't find Job's sins. And all of these programs coalesce into the part of the story where the author starts telling us about what happens in heaven, to which I must say, stop. How on earth did the author witness the events that happened in heaven? I mean, did God tell the author what happened in heaven? And if that's the case, did the author also go and interview Satan and get his side of the story? Because that's what responsible journalism is. Now, I've heard other authors talk about how they received a dream. But when this author is reporting a conversation between God and Satan in heaven, it's a pretty big bridge to cross, right? All of these problems bring a question forward in our minds, which is, wait, did Job really happen? Is this story a historical event? Or is this story something else? And while I think that's a good question to ask, I think it's ultimately an irrelevant question when you look at the literary structure of the book of Job. Because when you read Job, the first chapter is written in prose. The second chapter is written in prose. And then things change dramatically in chapter three, and all of a sudden the words are written in verse, and we read a poem about Job cursing the day he was born. Chapter four was also written in verse, and so was chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine. It goes all the way to chapter 41, and from chapter three to 41, it is all a poem written in verse. The book of Job then closes in chapter 42, which is primarily written in prose. If you are a percentage person, that means that 93% of the book of Job is a poem and 7% is written in prose. And I don't know about you, but if somebody were to report a news story with a poem, I think I would respond by saying, I'm not sure this is the best format to get the facts straight, right? The same is true when we go the other way and we go to a poem and we start asking the question, 
Did this really happen? Take, for instance, one of the greatest poets in Western history, a man named William Shakespeare. In his romantic poem titled Venus and Adonis, this is a poem between two lovers. Venus says to her lover Adonis, graze on my lips and if those hills be dry. Now, when we ask the poem, did this really happen? Did Venus want to plant sod on her lips so that Adonis could come and get nutritional sustenance by grazing off of her lips so that he could continue to live another day? Then we realize how ridiculous asking a poem, did this really happen, actually is. Not only that, but when you look closer at this poem between Venus and Adonis, she then goes on to say, stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie. And it's pretty clear she's not talking about architectural water features, if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> so in this book, three chapters are written in prose, 39 chapters are written in verse. And it's important for all of us to acknowledge that the book of Job is a poem. And when we know the prose better than we know the verse, then we have missed the point of what this poem is trying to tell us. The way I like to think about this book is from a film perspective. Now imagine that you are the director of this film or that the narrator is the director of this film. The way the narrator is telling us this story is it opens with this like eight minute prologue. And this prologue is like a propaganda piece where everything is super saturated, technicolor, everyone's really happy. Job is saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this suffering's happening and it just bounces off of him. Now, once that propaganda film ends, the curtain comes up and we see Job in pain and it's gritty and grainy and it's difficult to look at, but it's raw and it's real. And once that curtain is pulled up in chapter three, the real film begins with Job's opening line, God damn the day I was born and the night that forced me from the womb. And rather than letting that grittiness be exposed, the church usually hijacks the story here at this point and says, let us tell you the story of Job. Before all of this stuff begins, before all of this testing and all of this suffering, Job is extremely devout in his religion. And what happens is Job encounters all kinds of suffering from death to financial hardship to fire to winds. And in the midst of that suffering, when Job is flat on his back, he has a choice to make. He can either give up on the faith and walk away toward the dark trenches of atheism, or Job can pick himself up by his bootstraps, dust himself off, and return to the faith to which he was wholeheartedly devoted before the story began. And when the church paints the story of Job this way, what the story is about is Job's return to the faith that he held at the beginning of the story. In other words, religion tells us that Job's story is about confirmation, that his religion is correct in the first place and through brute force of faith is able to return to that religious practice no matter what trials are thrown his way. 
And if you've heard that story coming from the church before, I want you to know that story disturbs me too. It disturbs me because God's insecurity is the reason for Job's suffering. But on top of that, it comes off as a phony and shallow story. Because anyone who has suffered before knows that true suffering never allows us to return. Sure, the author of Job can tell us that after his 10 kids died, Job picked himself up and had 10 more kids, but we all know that you can't replace children. (laughs) True suffering never allows us to return. So when religion comes in and says, this is the story of Job returning to the religion that he had before, we all look at it and we say, is it? Is that really what this is about? And you can come to that conclusion if you just read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 42 of the book of Job. The problem you got to deal with then is what happens in chapters 3 to 41. Because a lot happens there and it all happens in the form of poetry. And the poetry has a prologue that is written in prose. And this prologue tells us that Job had everything figured out and then suffering happened and everything went to pot. Here is Job lying on his back. What will he say? And the opening line of the poem is, God damn, the day I was born. While religion will rush to tell you about the confirmation of faith that is in this story, the poetry tells us that this story is truly about transformation. And Job is fundamentally a different person going forward than he was at the beginning of this story. And whenever someone tells me they don't like the book of Job or they like the book of Job, one question that I love to ask them is simply this. Tell me, what does Job's transformation look like in this story to you? And if someone can't answer that question, then what it means is they have not read the poetry of Job, which is the substance of the book of Job. Job changes in this story. Job has a faith that has all the answers And then a whole lot changes between chapter 3 and 41. But religion will come in and hijack this story and make it a story about confirmation. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who has any experience with religion at all. Because religion loves confirmation and often pushes transformation to the side. Case in point, the line that religion, that Christian religion has taken from this story more than any other line is the line where Job has just found out that 10 of his children are dead and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when you look at the church, the church has taken this and made it into one of its most well-known praise songs. I have been to several praise and worship services where they have selected this song to be part of their set. You know what line never shows up in praise services I go to? God damn the day I was born. And religion is fine with transformation as long as transformation happens on religion's terms. But when Job does his transformation, oh man, we don't, we don't talk about that, do we? 
And so when we think about the praise and worship songs we sing in church, even at Paradox, a question I would ask us is, do we prefer to sing songs that are songs of confirmation or songs of transformation? Not only that, but when you look at the Bible, I think one of the gravest sins anyone can make in studying the Bible is that they go to the Bible to confirm what they already believe. No, no, no. The best way to approach the Bible is with a humble heart, hoping for transformation. And the question I would encourage anyone here to ask that studies the Bible is, do we read the Bible looking for confirmation or transformation? Now, religion will be quick to point out that we read the Bible for confirmation. And anytime you are struggling with a question, they will say, well, why don't you just read the Bible and then you will see that you'll come to the same conclusions that we have come to as a religious organization. <laughs> no, no, no. The Bible is at its best when we open it and search for transformation. Think about church itself and the community and what is preached from the front. Do we participate in church looking for confirmation? Do you sit through a sermon waiting for the pastor to tell you that you're killing it, you're doing a good job, you don't need to change anything? Or do you go to church hoping for transformation, that the pastor will challenge you with what is written in the Holy Bible, that the pastor will inspire you to think critically about what you believe and ultimately might change who you are? And you may be listening to this podcast and saying, no, I disagree with you, Craig. I actually think that faith is at its best when it's pursuing confirmation rather than transformation. That's fine. We can disagree about that. What we have to agree on, though, is that Job's story is a story of transformation. The poetry of the story, all 39 chapters, are about Job changing and transforming. And when we look at how all of this transformation occurs, it all begins with Job letting go of God. For two chapters, Job insists that God is good and that he can absorb this suffering. It can bounce right off him. And then after seven days of silence, Job says, no, I can't do it. Things have changed now. I have suffered too much to go back to what I had before. And what Job's story reveals is that spiritual transformation begins with letting go. And we need to become better at the spiritual discipline of letting go because so often we create idols and ideas about God that we need to let go of in order to grow. An example of this began a couple weeks ago when armed protesters stormed the Capitol building in Michigan. And because their skin was white, they were able to bring AR-15s into the Capitol building and not one of them was shot. No police officer feared for their life because the armed militiamen were all white Americans. Of course, you compare and contrast that with the horrible tragedy of Ahmad Arbery, who was simply jogging in a neighborhood who was unarmed and was hunted down by two white supremacists and murdered. And the murder of Ahmad Arbery 
asks us to let go of the idea that white supremacy doesn't exist in America. And this is a difficult thing for us to let go of. And by us, I mean white Americans. I mean, I grew up loving America. I love to hear about how America was, you know, the greatest country on the planet. And about how we sought equality of all above all else. And I remember loving history class all the way from kindergarten to 12th grade and enjoying learning about the founding fathers and the Civil War and just loving being part of this country in America. And then I went to college and I started to hear professors tell a very different perspective on American history, specifically the perspective of women and people of color. And when you looked at America through those lenses, all of a sudden, America for me became much more difficult and complex than I originally believed. And this felt like a betrayal against the country. This felt like an assault on me. I remember talking to professors about how hard their history class was because it felt like they were attacking me and my identity. And I would tell them, Look, I don't know what the problem is. I don't own any slaves. These aren't my sins. This is just the way things were. And everyone, not just America, owned slaves back then. So it wasn't that bad. You see, I didn't want to acknowledge that America had a terrible chronic problem with white supremacy. And as time has gone on since I graduated from college, it has become more and more apparent in our society's developing consciousness that we are more entrenched in our white supremacy than we want to admit. So along comes a politician who promises to make America great again, which raises the question, what does that mean? When was America great? And I remember when I first heard this slogan, I thought, oh, I know what he's doing. I know what this politician is doing. He is telling all of white America, that you can look at America and think it's a great country if you vote for me and put me in office. We can talk about how great America is and not apologize for refusing to change because we're the greatest country on earth. And our history is great, our present is great, and our future is great. So let's just admit those things and move on. You do not have to look at the hard parts of our history if you vote for me. But the reality is, we are a white supremacist society. And that every white American is tempted at some point in their life to believe in the superiority of their skin. And the only way that we can really address this white supremacy is head on and to admit that we as a country have this problem. But very few people want to admit that out loud. Because if we admit that we have a problem with white supremacy, we are admitting that America isn't as great as we tell everyone it is. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, we must let go of America's greatness to become the nation that we claim to be, where all people are created as equal and endowed by their creator. 
When I think of the tragic story of Ahmaud Arbery, I think of his mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, who celebrated her first Mother's Day without her son Ahmaud just yesterday. My heart breaks for her. I grieve with her. And my hope is that we as a community can do something about this and change the way we behave as a nation to end this racially motivated violence. And I am reminded that spiritual transformation begins with letting go. May we let go of America's greatness so that we might be able to mitigate the sin of white supremacy. May we let go of the temptation to believe that we are above temptation so that we can personally change and become more loving and more just. And may we let go of any picture of God that tells us that conformity and confirmation are the most important characteristics of faith. And may we embrace the idea that transformation is where God is leading us. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.